Good morning, good people. I'm going to share a spoken word poem <clears throat> that relates to this whole Holy Week that we just experienced. And my prayer is that it encourages you and empowers you and strengthens your faith. This is called Caution. Caution. The passion story you're about to hear has been known to peel open blind eyes and surprise them with sudden sight. This story brings zombie hearts to life and gives them phoenix wings to fly. The tale's beginning is in Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus prayed the night Judas betrayed him. He planted a poisonous kiss that led to the spread of a shroud of darkness over the sun. The one in the sky and the one crucified, Jesus Christ. A Superman, son of God, soon to save sinful man. But before this eclipse, sweat blood dripped from Jesus' face to the ground as he groaned in agony, Father, take this cup from me. It's too much for me. It overflowed with waterfalls of God's fury at our perfidy, our unfaithfulness. Someone had to pay for this. So Jesus drank every drop. The angry mob who accused him of blasphemy seized him and plastered him to a sinner's cross. Someone held the nails. Someone raised the hammer. And someone pounded them into his open hands. They spit on him and jammed a crown of thorns into his skull. He was full of every pain imaginable when he managed to go, it is finished. While his work was done, the story was still underway. On Sunday, the sun threw off its blanket, yawned and stretched into the sky. In the tomb where Jesus lay, two angels and garments bright as lightning cried, he's alive. He rised, he, the rose, rose. Rather, he was raised. It's no ruse. He survives in you. His blood courses through your veins and gives you everything you need. The supernatural strength to see and believe and to soar on your phoenix wings, following the king. Thank you. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen, lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Hey, good morning, church. 
Hey, man, you guys look great. You sound great. Can we give it another round of applause for the choir? Goodness gracious. Man, I am full today, friends. I, let me add my voice to the chorus. Christ is risen. Oh, man, that's fantastic. I, I, my name is Matthew Watson. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City Church, and I have the distinct privilege to be able to serve with an amazing uh, team of folks with Reverend Justin Fung, who was leading worship. I get to serve alongside Andrea Ackerman, who serves as our pastoral associate. She was leading the choir. Uh, the amazing Nikki Wiggins, who directs Kids City with Melissa O'Keefe, who is our outreach fellow, and Amy Sawyer, who is our creative arts fellow. And I just want to say, uh, again, welcome. Welcome to Christ City. On behalf of the staff and the elders, we'll th we're thrilled that you're here to celebrate this Easter Sunday. Um, I, I do want to say that as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, I would be remiss if I don't tell you this, that one of the tremendous evidences in my life of the power of God in my life is the fact that Lisa married me. <laughs> Today is our 18th wedding anniversary. <laughs> we're trying to uh, I overheard Lisa sharing with our daughter this morning about, ah, oh, it's our anniversary. And she's like, wow, you guys got married on Easter? And we're like, well, it sort of moves around. She's like, what? <laughs> she didn't understand. Why? Like, it was just, it was, it's this lunar calendar. I'm like, never mind, just celebrate with us. Again, just glad that you're here. Today we gather to remember, happy anniversary, baby. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Take a day we gather to remember and to celebrate the moment that changed the course of history, both human history and cosmic history. We are here to remember and to celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the grave and the moment where the world caught a glimpse of the beauty of His kingdom and the foretaste of the day when He makes all things right and new and whole. And so in this day, on this moment where we remember and celebrate, it is right for us to say that Christ is risen. Yes, we are here, and uh, the church, we're here, not just that we're here, but that the church around the world, and not just the church that's around the world right now, but in keeping with all of the churches and all of the saints who have gone before us, we are here to, with them, laud the King who was born in a manger, died on a cross, and was raised from the grave. And in our celebration of that momentous and far-reaching and globally significant events, we are here to remember that Jesus' resurrection, it has implications for us now. This, this 21st day of April of 2019, because Jesus defeated His grave, all graves are now put on notice. And so we can say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? As he goes on to say, thanks be to God, he gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's right for us to say that Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. This, the phrase that we say back and forth, it actually has its origins in, in the Greek tradition. It was handed down through the generations and it was translated into every language in which there is a church. The call and response is called a paschal greeting. It's uh, a, f a transliteration of the Hebrew word pasha, which means the Passover, which is the story that tells of Israel's uh, freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's the Jewish salvation story. 
The Christian origins of this greeting are bound up in the resurrection story, most notably in Luke 24, when there are these two disciples that are walking the road to Emmaus following Jesus' resurrection, but they don't know that he's been resurrected yet. Jesus meets them. He sort of meets them in in, in a bit of a disguise, and he reminds them that he said that he would have to die, but that he would also rise again. Jesus breaks bread with these disciples, and it's then that their eyes are opened and they realize that Jesus has been walking with them. He has been talking with them. He has been meeting them in their resurrection sorrow and reminding them of, of resurrection joy. And in response, the disciples, upon realizing that it's Jesus all along, the disciples announce in Luke 24, 34, they say, It's true. The Lord has risen. He's risen indeed. And so this greeting, this, this pronouncement of the resurrection of Jesus, it stirs in us our own remembering of when we were saved, of when we were rescued, and of Christ's work on the cross. And so it's, that's the celebratory greeting that we're saying to one another when we say Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. It's a reminder that because of Christ that we can have life and that we can have it abundantly. But it's also important for us to note that when we say that Christ is risen, what we're saying is that he's actually risen from somewhere. That he's risen from a grave, from a a tomb. It's to a tomb, notably, that our Easter attention goes. It's where the story opens in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved. By the way, John is writing this. He always identifies himself as the one that Jesus loved because of his great humility. And he said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Mary Magdalene, who's one of Jesus' most faithful disciples, she's the first to arrive at the place where Jesus was buried and she sees that the stone isn't in front of the tomb any longer. And though the text doesn't mention that she goes into the tomb or that she goes inside, she still rightly assumes that Jesus isn't there. She knows that the tomb is empty, but she doesn't yet know what to make of it because tombs aren't supposed to be empty. I suspect in this room, we all have experiences with graves. Some of you quite recently places where you lay those that have arrived at the end of a journey. John 20, the opening scene of the resurrection story, it begins with a grave. And for the rest of the chapter, the story sort of circles around the grave. It circles and swirls around this image. The grave is what Irish storytellers call a gleaming detail when they're telling stories. Babette Buster, a professional storyteller with Pixar, she describes it this way in one of her books. The the gleaming detail is this one thing that captures both the emotion and the idea of a story all at once in one fell swoop. And the empty grave, a grave where the stone is rolled away and there's just grave clothes there and it's empty. This empty grave is our gleaming detail. It is the item and the image that captures our emotion, the essence of the story all at once. And because the grave is empty, it's empty, not because it's awaiting to receive someone, but it is empty because it is given up someone. 
And because the tomb is empty, it holds the possibility and the promise that all graves can be emptied. Resurrection stories actually require graves. In many ways, graves are the the ultimate insulter. They're the things that separate us from those that we love in a physical sense and in another sense, graves isolate us from that which would bring us joy. We're at a grave on Sunday because we were at a cross on Friday. Friday's gleaming detail is the cross, the the tool, the instrument of Jesus' murder. On the cross on that Friday generations ago, Jesus took on the sin and with it the rejection of His Father, a rejection that was due to us, due to humanity because of the mess that we've made of our lives and of the world. Jesus took that on Himself, on our behalf. And in so doing, He suffered the greatest of tragedies, the disunion that would be upon Him. It was wrought because of sin, because sin and death and graves, they always look to separate. Sin always isolates. It always seeks to disunion us. And that is exactly and deeply what Jesus experienced on the cross. The isolation and separation. When, <clears throat> when my daughter was younger, she had this um, hobby at the dinner table where she would take her food and she would throw it around. Not in her mouth, just at us, just around on the floor. She would have these temper tantrums where she would just grab whatever and it would toss. Sometimes uh, she was a good shot. It would end up, I feel like I should wear a bib, not you. This is getting a little out of hand. And in one sort of fit where just food and it's just sloshing around. We're all like ducking for cover. Lisa and I are too, I'm just in a fit of frustration. I don't know if this is good parenting or if this just was ordained by the Lord that I should do this. But I got up in frustration. I grabbed her. She was in her high chair. It was one of those plastic ones that you snap into a regular chair not like a wooden one like old school like I was in don't know some of you are like I just it was a high chair just trust me and she's there and I grab it and she's sitting at the table and I just turn her around to where she's not facing the table anymore so now she's her back is to us and immediately when I look over at my my two sons my oldest especially he's got this look of horror like what have you done to my sister she's now long she's facing away from the table and she and he's and Annalise, she just sits in her chair and immediately she just sort of she quiets and she slumps and she just gets tearful. My oldest son starts crying too because he's like, "That is wrong. What are you doing?" Just sort of the injustice of this son that I've named after a prophet who is always announcing what things are wrong in the world. He's like, "This is wrong. She should not be facing that way." And that's precisely where we are or where we were, isolated, because that's what sin does. It isolates and segregates and and it dislocates us. Sin exiles. We were cut off from the God who made us because of sin and brokenness with our backs to the table of community and no way to turn back around. Good Friday reminded us of our isolation. It reminds us of Jesus' isolation from the Father. But the empty grave that trumpets a message that because of Christ we have been brought back and bought back by His sacrifice and His resurrection. We remember that the reason that we have a right-facing seat at the table with God and His saints is because Jesus gave up His seat. The story doesn't end with crosses or with burials. The story ends with empty graves and a living God, church.
I have a picture that I want to show you. Uh, some of you have seen this before. I've mentioned this story at different times. This is a family picture. I think this may be like one of the first family portraits that we did uh, with my family at Olin Mills. This is, uh, this is, um, so this is my dad, uh, Wayne. He's wearing a pearl snap sort of cowboy shirt, sort of hipster before it was just him. <laughs> uh, there were other things that I look back and I'm like, that, that's in style now. I wish I, I, wish I had that belt. Um, this is my mom, Dion, and then this is me. I think I've had this same amount of hair for 44 <laughs> years, just all together. My parents were married. They were, they were really young. Uh, they, they weren't married yet when I was born, um, and then they got married afterwards. And uh, it was a rough go of it for them early on. And in a, a, a heated discussion, my family didn't have heated discussions. They just had arguments. And in an argument, my mom took this picture, and she ripped it up and, like, threw it at my dad. We're very fiery of a fiery bunch, our family. Um, we just let you know sort of where we stand uh, on things. And she threw it up, and, and it was, but then at some point later, if you, you probably can't see it, at some point later, you can see there's creases there. Those aren't actually creases. My mom got some tape, and she taped it back together. And my parents were married for almost 40 years before my dad passed. This sits in my office, and, it's, and it sits in, um, I've got like theology books and commentaries and Bible study books and just other things by, by theologians, great thinkers of the past and of the present. But this sits in its middle because it reminds me that because of Christ, things can be mended. The, the graves that hold our marriages, that graves that hold uh, friendships or relationships, that graves that hold our hopes or our dreams, that graves that hold our financial situations or our career directions, that feel like we have laid those things in a grave and a stone's been rolled over it. This reminds me that no, because of Christ, the stone is rolled away and things can be mended and we have hope in the resurrection because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So that's my theological reminder there of the hope that we have in Jesus. Forty days ago, we celebrated Ash Wednesday, which is the day in the Christian calendar that marks the beginning of the season of Lent, the season that leads us to this day, to Easter. It's marked by fasting and reflection. The centerpiece of uh, the service that we had, it's the imposition of ashes. It's where the pastors and the elders, where they made the sign of the cross on, the, on many of your foreheads, on the foreheads of our congregants. And during that service, I said that there is hope in these ashes. Traditionally, the ashes that we use, they were made from the burned palm branches from the previous year's Palm Sunday celebration, the very branches that were used to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem ahead of his crucifixion. They'd be subsequently burned, and the ashes would then be used the following year to mark the beginning of Lent. The riotous celebration of Palm Sunday is lost in the fire, but it's found in the ashes. There is a death but there is a resurrection, there is a cross, but there is a kingdom. And in this way, the story of the ashes and the sorrow of the ashes, the lament of the dust gives way to the hope that's found even in that message 40 days ago. That our sin doesn't overwhelm us because we know that there's a Savior. Our limitations don't diminish us because it shows us that there's a God. The Easter story, it begins, it begins at a tomb. 
but it begins at an empty tomb to remind us of resurrection and foreshadow all of the resurrections to come. Verse 3, the story continues. So Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looking in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. I love that John, who's the other disciple in the story, as I mentioned, that he makes note that he's faster than Peter here in the Holy Scriptures, written down for the edification of our faith, so that we can know that John is just faster in a foot race. I don't think it's... I think it's a bit unfair, frankly, because he, he was younger than Peter. And so, you know, Peter may have just been an older guy. He's like, man, it's all I can do to get here. Um, but, but I think that this part of the story where, where John and Peter traveling together at Mary's uh, invitation, really, that it's actually quite good counsel for us even now. When visiting empty graves, take a friend. Don't go alone. When you hear of resurrections and you want to investigate, take someone with you. Or when you witness a resurrection, go and tell others. Because the work of God in the world isn't simply for your individual well-being. The work of Christ isn't only to go to you, it's to go through you to others. This isn't only at the resurrection, by the way. Time and time again during Jesus' ministry when he sent out the disciples to share the gospel, to pray, to heal, to show compassion, he sent them out at least in pairs if not in groups. He didn't send them out alone often. Our life and our faith is built for community. But recently I've been watching a TV show. We don't watch a lot of TV and so it's really exciting whenever we find a show that all of us um, as a family watch. Interestingly, we watch uh, as a family together, we watch a show called Alone. Um, and what this story is, it's like one of these reality sort of survival shows. I'm not sure why we've settled on this one to watch as a family. But anyway, um, they dropped 10 people off in some wilderness somewhere around the world. One time it was Vancouver Island. Another time it was Patagonia. Another time it's in like Inner Mongolia. And they're in different places and they're all by themselves. And the only thing they have is like a backpack and then a massive amount of like camera gear because it's a show, by the way. And in the backpack is like, I, I looked at the list, it's like two pair of underwear, like a saw, an axe, a flintstone, and that's it. Good luck. Hope you don't die. If you do, get it on camera. And so, like, this is where it is. And it's interesting because what happens is some of them, like, immediately they get dropped and then they realize, oh my word, I'm by myself and there's animals here that could really hurt me. And they're like, ah, never mind. I'm done with this. A half million dollars is on the line, by the way. Like, if they last to the end of it, if they're the last person, they get $500,000. But many of them, they leave because they're afraid of bears. One guy lasted 90 minutes. Like he got there, he was like, whoa, I see a lot of bear scat. Not cool. I think I'm leaving. And he calls him. Like, I don't even think the boat had like gotten out of sight yet. They're like making a U-turn to come pick him up. He's like, ah, I was just kidding, bro. Just take me home. Um, other times they leave because they've got to, you know, they can't, uh, they get hungry. Starvation begins to set in. They can't, they just don't catch enough fish. But most of them leave because they're survivalists. They know sort of the score, most of them leave because they can't stand being alone. 
They get to the place where they just say, you know what? This is enough days without my family. Or I think, I think two months is long enough away from my community. I've learned enough about myself and about this place on my own. I'm ready to go home. And that's why they leave. Because we aren't islands. We aren't meant to live lives alone. It's true of survival and it's true of our life with Christ. Being in a community will mean that we will go with people who run faster than we do sometimes. It will also mean that we have to travel with people that move slower than we do sometimes. We all won't run at the same place or at the same pace. But there's beauty in the difference. And if we exercise faith together, we will end up at the empty grave looking over the evidence left there and the miracle that occurred. Peter and John arrive at the tomb and they held the linens that once held Jesus. They moved the cloths in their fingers that once were laid on the broken body of their master and they are there together. But they don't understand it all yet. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. <laughs> John again, Peter walked inside first, but I just want you to know I made it first, so let me repeat that in the Bible. The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. He saw what was there and what wasn't, and he believed. In verse 9, they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I love this, that John, as he's writing, he's, he's giving a bit of self-disclosure. He's giving his testimony, and he's saying, in case we missed it the first time, A, that he is still faster than Peter and arrived there first. B, that he believed and see that he still didn't understand everything. I find this remarkable and beautiful and freeing. John is saying that he saw and that he believed, even though there was much that he didn't understand. There was still a measure of uncertainty that he had, but he had enough information, enough experience, and enough insights to know that he can move forward in his belief. He didn't have certainty, but neither did he have blindness. He had enough information, though there was still doubt, still lingering questions, yet still belief. <clears throat> in 2005, I was sitting in the Club One Casino in downtown Fresno, California. I was, now before you freak out that I was playing poker, let me just tell you what was happening. I was playing in a charity tournament. Uh, and I was playing No Limit Texas Hold'em. Now, I should also tell you that I grew up in a family of uh, gamblers and card players. And so even at an early age, I knew my way around 52. Um, so I sit down at this table, and I'm feeling, frankly, a bit confident about my skills at this time in my life. I sit down at a ten-handed game. If you don't know how the game is played, uh, then I'm going to lose you here for a minute, but I'll pick you up in a minute. So I sit down at a ten-handed game, and the first hand that I'm dealt, the very first hand that I'm dealt, I'm dealt a king-jack. Okay? The bet it goes down, it goes around, I like that, so I place a bet, and then the flop comes up. It's a queen, ace, and a ten. At this point, I have just received 
what is called in poker parlance the nuts. It means that when you see that, you're like, whoa, this is the best hand that could have been dealt to me. I'm feeling very confident my first hand at the table at the Fresno Charitable Charity Poker Tournament. So I bet, a few others bet, some drop out. Then, uh, at this point, by the way, I didn't know this at the time, I looked it up later. At that point, I have a 96% chance of winning this hand. So I bet others fold around. Another player directly across from me, she raises, which makes me excited. I re-raise and call the bet. The turn comes, it's a four. At this point, if you're keeping count, it's a queen, ace, ten, four. I now have a 90% chance of winning this hand. The river comes up, it's the last card, it's another four. Just to help you out, queen, ace, ten, four, four. I bet she calls, we flip over our cards, she has an ace and a four. <laughs> she has a full house, she beats my straight. At this point, I lose my mind. <laughs> I still have a few chips left. I play like a wreck. I'm careless. I'm flustered. I simply flush all of my chips down the toilet, and I am the first one knocked out of the tournament. I'm dressed nicely. Lisa is there. We're like 50. Another guy at the table, he goes, man, that was fast. <laughs> I'm like I'm just sort of the slow walk across the floor and Lisa's like well you want to go get some dinner we're all dressed up and I'm like yes I do <laughs> for the next several weeks like I'm thinking about this I cannot get away from this I'm talking to other friends of mine that play I'm talking to my brother who was sort of a professional player at this point uh, in his life and I'm like how could I have gotten out of the hand I'm running this I find like online simulators and trying to figure out could I have bet differently is there another way I could have backed out of this and time and time again what comes back to me is the message of no you play it that way every single time you never have all of the information but you have enough and you move forward. For some of you, that's a terrible story. <laughs> but for most of you, I'm betting, it's a freeing story. You won't always have all the information. But you will have enough to move forward. John's invitation to us is to come and see the empty tomb. Get there however quickly or however slowly you can, but get there. And to believe, John saw and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one sent to save. And his invitation to us is to likewise believe. To surrender our lives and our graves and step into the life that he 